Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to Season 2, Episode 13 of the Average to Elite Podcast. As always, I'm your host, Chris Lowe, and today I was joined by performance coach Jack Clark to discuss how to best prepare and develop a football player so they can reach their true and highest potential. So whether you're going from amateur to sub-elite, sub-elite to elite, uh, Jack's information and insight today uh, is certainly going to move you up that ladder and get you achieving um, your performance-based goals. Um, Jack's detail and insight again is absolutely phenomenal and it's absolutely a pleasure having him on today's show to discuss this and share um, this information with you. I certainly took a lot away from today's show and uh, if you are a footballer, this is going to be 10x for you. So without further ado, let's get into today's episode of the pod. Jack, how are we? Yeah, man, I'm good. Um, I'm actually very stoked to be on this. I've been watching the clips and stuff, and I've been listening to a couple of episodes, and um, I've been hoping that I would be asked on. So I'm glad that I got asked. So yeah, I'm looking forward to. I'm looking forward to getting things done. We got it done. We got it done. You're on board. So, um, Jack, I clearly know who you are, but for the listeners, for the audience, uh, can you just give them a quick background and insight into yourself? Yeah, so um, I am currently a private sector SNC coach or performance coach or whatever fancy title that you want to put on it. Um, in terms of my own history, I went through the university education system. So I did my honours degree in strength and conditioning um, and then came home for a little bit, um, coached a bit, then I decided that I wanted to further my education. So I I went to UCD and I did an MSc in coaching science, um, which was a really, really great course. Um, I had a stint then with Hockey Ireland while I was studying down there, um, which was which was a great organisation to be a part of. And it, it was an awesome experience. Um, and then came home and I decided to want to go private sector. So um, worked out of a gym in Andrum um, for a while, um, took some athletes on board there and then eventually set up my own facility, um, which is just small, little small gym studio, um, which I absolutely love the coach out of and pretty much just run um, private S&C coaching for a wide range of athletes. Um, and I also coach a little bit with the general pop as well and um, just anybody who wants to get a little bit more athletic um so that's that's pretty much me in a nutshell fantastic and in terms of yourself with your own sport obviously uh, a footballer yeah. how's that been going for you throughout sort of uh lockdown i know that you know all games everything like that and else everything else in between has been massively uh challenging for people but have you got on with it how uh, have you been progressing yeah, man. So it's a bit of a controversial topic here because um, at the moment I'm playing in the Premier Intermediate League, which is our third tier. Um, and the Premier League um, was, they were given the elite classification. Um, and I think that the clubs maybe from the Championship won and the league I'm in potentially felt a little bit left out because we all sort of fall under the Irish League bracket, um, the first, the second and the third tier. So 
um, it was a bit of a controversial topic and anybody that has sort of been up to date with the Irish Cup has seen like a lot of teams withdraw from the Irish Cup um, as like a as a principal statement I suppose um, they just they sort of weren't happy that they sort of got left out in the cold for the last year and I know you know for you know, for us at Armagh we sort of felt the same we were hoping that we might have been included but we weren't so it's pretty much been um it's been very very hard i mean we had a phase like it's been it's been very up and down like we had a phase where we were actually returned to play i think it was like october november time so we got a really short window to prepare and then we were thrown straight into cup competitions um like and we were playing quarterfinals of cups and then into semi-finals of cups really really you know important games and we haven't really played with a ball and it was it was it was bizarre really and then we were playing against Premier League teams in cup competitions that have been playing the whole way through and it was just it was um it was pretty intense and then obviously we got locked down again and then we were allowed to return but without a ball and we were just doing conditioning sessions which was really psychologically tough and then the whole thing got cancelled then obviously round December, January, and now we're hoping, hoping that we're able to return in the next couple of weeks and get some form of competition played. But you know, for myself, it's been, it's been, it's been hard as a player and as a coach to be able to stay, I suppose, motivated and to help to motivate others whenever there hasn't been a concrete competition date. Um, you know, because that's at the end of the day, that's what we train for. Like we train for the game, and you know, as a coach, I coach people for the game, and um, it's been very, very hard not having a concrete schedule or a competition window to actually cement in place, even to structure training, even to structure my own training, to structure the training of my athletes and stuff. It's been very, very hard because you don't know the time frame that you're dealing with. Like, I, like I have a couple of guys who were um, who were classified as elite like two weeks ago so they're straight into competition it's like i'm not prepared for this at all we've just been you know we've been on our toes so i've been on my toes from a training perspective you know for myself and just trying to do things as well as what i possibly can so whenever the competition comes you know returns which is hopefully soon that i'll be in the best position that i can be which still won't be a very good one but the best position that i can be to return to competition you know Awesome. And that's what I want to try and uh, get into today. And that's why exactly why I invited you on the pod. So obviously a performance coach and you work with footballers, you're a footballer yourself. So it's almost a case to answer the question of how can we best develop a footballer, the ultimate footballer. So moving into that, a nice uh, natural segue and transition. Um, <laughs> um, so essentially like um, how can we best um kind of define an elite footballer like is there any kind of key physical characteristics they have so i think it's always nice to kind of put in like some key definitions on this so we can kind of picture that and then we can kind of work off uh, that so from um, a physical characteristic perspective what do you typically look for in an elite footballer yeah so like when it comes to any any sport um i think whenever we're looking for what are what are the KPIs for the elite level? We we have to look at the sport and we just reverse engineer it. So we look at what are the demands in terms of the energetic? What are the demands in terms of the motor? The whole thing. So we just reverse engineer it. Um, what way do the players move? What way do the players have to 
perform? What energy systems are involved? What does it look like? And for me, an elite footballer has to be has to have an ability to produce high speeds over successive repeats. And that's 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 my number one most important physical characteristic of a footballer is can they produce high speeds over successive repeats? Um, we're also looking for aerobic capabilities. So like we're looking for aerobic capacity and aerobic economy. So like, are they efficient with their aerobic energy system? Um, their aerobic capacity. So like how long can they produce aerobic capability for? Um, you know, so the capacity is obviously, the, you know, the period of time we're able to perform at that aerobic level and then your economy being the efficiency of the energy utilization. So how do they use it? Um, and then if I was going to give a third one in terms of my key physical characteristics, it would be the ability to accelerate, to decelerate and to change direction quickly. Um, those, those would be my top three that I would be looking for in terms of the physical characteristics. And obviously like, you know, before we go any further, obviously we're speaking about the physical now, but there are, there are so many factors that come into being an elite level footballer. And, you know, we always hear a lot of coaches talking about, you have to be like a PhD in your sport. So like the physical is just a segment of that. The reality of it is that the best footballers in general are a PhD in their sport. Like they are, they are, they are so good at their sport. So whenever we are obviously speaking about the physical, it helps, but obviously it isn't everything, you know. That's a really, really good point there. I think like from like a support perspective, whether it is SNC performance, rehab, nutrition, psychology, they can have all this really locked in, but Ultimately, if they're not very good at the sport, then they're not going to hit this elite status, are they? Well, I think that we like to think we're more important than what we are sometimes, you know, in terms of the general uh, support team. I mean, I'm sure you have worked, you know, with people who have made it to the elite level whose nutrition hasn't been as good as what other people who maybe haven't. And, yeah. you know, I have worked with people who have made it to the highest who you wouldn't necessarily look at and go, you're physically gifted, you know, and we can think of, you know, any amount of players playing professional sports who you wouldn't look at and go, they are like literally, they could be in the Olympics, you know, they are physically, but they're just so good at their sport. And there's a lot that goes into it, you know, the technical, the tactical, there's so many things that go into it, but definitely in terms of what we are discussing, the physical, especially I think now with sports science advancing so much and being so involved now the physical is definitely very 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 important yeah without a doubt so just to kind of um go on a slightly different route there we talked about the physical briefly there but what about the psychological like the mindset have you got any kind of um not necessarily like kpis but any kind of key characteristics needed for an elite athlete or elite footballer to have my number one thing would be emotional control that's my that's that's my that's my number one um and again these are traits that i have both um looked at and learned about but also seen and witnessed firsthand 
with my own athletes or players that I have played with that have maybe moved on to higher levels. Um, and obviously we can pick examples of people who like run off of like raw emotion and they're hyped and they're this and they're that. And when they're angry, they're really good. But if you look at the majority of elite level performers, they have lots of control over their in the moment emotions like they they rarely will get flustered they rarely will allow their environment to dictate how they perform um i think from a psychological perspective emotional control is not easy um and is it something that can be trained that's a discussion probably for for a, you know for a psychologist but um i find that that plus the ability to make a game day as close to a training session as possible is another characteristic that I see with elite performers. They just, they don't seem to get themselves too excited. And again, I suppose that falls under emotional control, but these guys just treat the game like a practice day in a good way. So they practice with intent and intensity and, you know, they do things right. But when it comes to game day, it's just another day at the office and they don't treat it like anything different than that. And that's when you see players do things, you know, he was ice cold there. It's like, he does this every day or she, they do this every day and they don't do anything different on game day. So for me, it's that control of, I do this every day. I'm not going to treat it any differently. I think once you start to make the game a special event, you start to act very, very differently. And that's whenever things like anxiety and things can start coming into play and can start interfering with performance mindset. That's my opinion. Obviously, there are, there are anomalies to that of athletes who get themselves really hyped, really, really excited, and they perform really well that. But for the majority, it's those who can remain calm, remain controlled and I think a lot of research comes from the sort of special forces on that. That's like one of their key things that they would look at is like, you do not make decisions based on how you feel. You make the decisions based on what you know the best decisions to be. And I think there's a lot of transfer between how we, how special forces train and how they act and bringing that into sport. Yeah, very nice point. So it comes down to being process-driven as opposed to outcome-driven. Yeah, definitely. 100%. No, that's a really cool point. So in terms of like going back to the physical side of things, um, do these physical characteristics differ between different positions? I.e. whether you're a defender, midfield, wing, does anything uh, change there? Or are we always going to be looking at sort of high-speed, repeatability, aerobic capacity, acceleration, deceleration, agility? Is there any sort of key differences? Do some players need to be X, Y, Z, where the other ones need to be slightly different, going in a slightly different direction? Yeah, well, I think we see, like, from... Um, obviously, the different positions will um, will cover different distances um, and will have, I suppose, less high-speed meters covered. Um, obviously, your midfield players, wide midfielders, central midfielders will run in general and will perform 
more high speed runs than what your center backs will. Um, I think that we just allocate that into their training loads. So like if we are prescribing training loads for these athletes and we look at, right, obviously our wide players need to be able to perform a greater total cover distance and a greater total amount of high-speed runs, then we would just alter that in the training load. But in, in my opinion, for footballers, there doesn't seem, you know, obviously like apart from the goalkeeper, there isn't a lot of a difference between those characteristics. Like these players still need to be able to cover high speeds in successive repeats. They still need to be able to accelerate and decelerate, change direction, and they still have to have an aerobic capacity. So I don't think with footballers that it differs too much apart from when you're looking at training loads, how high has how high has the load to be? Because obviously you will have players that do more of said characteristics, but they're still the same characteristics that we're looking at. Yeah, awesome. So pretty much the entire team, apart from the goalkeeper, will have yep. very similar kind of outcomes. Um, so how can we uh, best develop these three key areas? So again, high-speed repeatability, aerobic capacity, and then your change of direction, acceleration, deceleration. How can we best develop these from a uh, training perspective? Yeah, like, listen, obviously there's a lot of factors here that have to be managed. So smart programming is a must. So we want to build a program really that is based around the development of your speed, so your alactic power, right? And your aerobic qualities. Now, we need speed training. So your alactic power is your speed, right? And that has to be prioritized. Yes, we need to treat aerobic aerobic fitness with the respect that it deserves, but we also need to know its place. So the successful team is not the team that sustains the highest aerobic velocity. It's the team who sustains the highest percentage of their max velocity over the game, right? And I think that we have this, like, we have this emotional attachment to the aerobic system because we see the volume of distance the players cover. But again, and I'll say it again, it's not the team that sustains the highest aerobic velocity. It's the team who sustains the highest percentage of their max velocity who is going to be in with the best chance. Um, of course, we know like that there's some transfer of strength to speed. And if you're weak, it's an injury risk. And it's, you know, it's a bad thing when it comes to being fast. So like we need a general level of strength, but we need our qualities to be relevant so we need to focus on like appropriate power training speed strength so like a program that is centered around the prioritization of a lactic power speed training um ensuring that we're not weak so that we have a general level of strength and that we are giving the appropriate focus to the power qualities the speed strength qualities and then making sure that aerobically yes we we give it respect but we don't prioritize it as the number one most important factor when it comes to conditioning for football and that's i think the mistake that a lot of teams and a lot of athletes make is that they prioritize aerobic but 
there's no point in, in my opinion, there's no point in getting better at running slowly. That makes no sense to me. You want to be able to get better at performing high speeds. So continually training aerobic is just you improving your capability to be slow. But you can be slow just more often. That doesn't spell a recipe for success for me. So it definitely has its place, but it's not the highest priority. No, no. You, what, what I will look for is a prioritization of speed with the secondary consideration when it comes to conditioning being, let's make sure we have an aerobic capacity that is relevant to the sport. And is that then to support the repeatability aspect of it? So then yeah, you can so, go again and again without dropping off with max speed and max velocity. Well, I'll put it to you this way, right? So, and this was this was something I think that I had I had sort of planned to go over this like later on in the pod, but we'll go through it. We'll go through it now. All right, right? Well, let's let's crack on. We'll just rip in, yeah. Yeah. So, right, consider. You have, consider you have an athlete, right? Who runs eight meters per second, okay? So we know in general that your average high-speed runs are, are in and around six and a half meters per second, right? So say we have an athlete who can currently run eight meters per second over 30 meters, which is the majority of accelerations in football are 20 to 30 meters, right? So six and a half meters per second, whenever your max speed is eight, that's that's about 80, 81% of their max velocity, right? So they are performing at 80, 81% of the max velocity. Say this, say this athlete has an off season and they improve their max speed from eight meters per second to 8.5 meters per second, which with good with a, you know, a well-structured program, we could get there. Um, now, six and a half meters per second is now about 75, 76% of the max velocity. So what we do by getting faster is we push these already sub-maximal speeds that we cover further into the sub-maximal realm. Okay, so we just push them. Now, what was still sub-max, because six and a half meters per second is still sub-max, right? Even if you are only hitting eight meters per second. But if you can then hit 8.5 meters per second, now this 6.5 is now further into the sub-max realm. Therefore, we're able to perform these for longer without the lactic contributions. Because we know once we get into that lactic energy system, we're we're on a timer. So the, in, the increase of speed is actually what can give us the opportunity to perform harder for longer. Moving that lactic threshold to the right reduces the lactic contribution. So by getting faster, and this is again, this is something that people don't think about. By getting faster, we improve our ability to perform these Submax speeds because they're more submax to us now. We're working at a lesser intensity, so it's easier. Even even if you weren't to touch aerobic conditioning that much, and you know we just sort of took it as a secondary 
um, quality. Improving speeds still will make these sub-maximal speeds that we hit to in a game easier for us. So we're able to perform them more often. Like if I was to give you, like if I was to give you a practical example, we'll take, we'll take Usain Bolt, right? Everybody knows him, 100 meters, right? And we'll look at a 1,500-meter runner, so like Aspel Cabral, right? An amazing 1,500-meter runner. Say you're in charge of a football team and you, you get to choose between the two. Who are you going to put on your team? The fast guy. Yeah, you see him bolt, right? Because we know that you see him bolt will be the first guy onto the loose ball, right? We know that he will be able to chase down an attacker if he's playing in defense. We know that when the critical moment comes, he's probably going to win that race. And because you see him bold can run so fast, like 6.5 meters per second for this guy is like a job. His recoverability is like, I'm not even working here. I can just do this and do this and do this. And he wins every race and he wins every race and he wins every race, but he doesn't like, there are aerobic qualities that he'll train, but he doesn't train, you know, to be aerobically fit. He trains to be fast, but because these sub max speeds that we see in football are so sub max to him, he can perform them again and again and again at high speeds. And that's where when we train the aerobic system, it's more for just the ability to perform the game, recoverability, you know, just in a general sense. Obviously, we can't be unfit. We still have to be able to recover from the high-speed sprints and whatever else. And having an aerobic system that is conditioned obviously helps with that because we know that there isn't any one system working at any one time but the speed aspect is what's really important when it comes to the successive repetition of these sprints because we make it so that the average meters that we hit again six and a half meters per second roughly is easier so it doesn't take that much out of us as what it used to do the key question then how do you improve speed? How do you train for it? <laughs> yeah, listen, this is, this is, I think this is what, like, I wanted to talk about, um, you know, that it, it's very, very misunderstood. Um, speed gets this. I think a lot of coaches believe that we can train speed through the game, right? Because we run fast in the game, but you will very rarely hit your max velocity in a game and because we don't get adequate rest in the game after about our first sprint everything after that is now sub max from an output point of view the effort is still potentially max but the output is not max anymore because we get the incomplete rest periods so the game will not handle this for us and speed is a skill. Again, people have this like, you can't train speed. That's bullshit. No way, you can train speed. Speed is a skill. The ability to accelerate is a skill. Max velocity is a skill. There is so much from a, from a biomechanical point of view that we can train. Speed is completely coachable. Obviously, you have a ceiling. Like, you know, there are genetic potentials. But speed is trainable. It is a skill. 
obviously that is influenced by genetic factors, but aren't they all really? So how do we train speed? We need exposure to sprint work. That, that's, that is the basic of it. We need exposure to sprints. Um, we need exposure to acceleration. We need to spend time at our max velocity. We need to know how it feels to sprint as fast as we possibly can. Um, we need to look at how we accelerate and we need to look at, right, what mistakes am I potentially making? Because fast people have a lot more commonalities than they have any sort of differences. You know, obviously there's going to be slight things, but there's a lot more common things between quick people than what there are you know, subtle differences. So where am I potentially leaking energy here that's resulting in me being slower and where could I potentially get faster here? So it comes from like exposure to sprint training, having it as a prioritization in a program and looking from, from a biomechanics point of view of, well, how do I actually move? And that's whenever the coach comes into play, someone that has to understand, well, how, how does a fast mover move? What are the, what are the important things to look for here? So it's not easy to get faster. It's complex. And I think people try to dial down and to simplify training. And there are areas that can be simplified, like strength, general strength. Go lift some weights. Like that's how track coaches view general strength. They act like it, it's general organism strength. If the organism gets stronger through whatever means, you get stronger. And yet we have strength and conditioning coaches arguing over like what sort of a deadlift to use. It's like, man, just do a fucking deadlift, but do it after sprint training. Do it after your speed work. That's the prioritization. We're fighting over the wrong stuff because we don't know what we're doing on the field with the important stuff because that's that the complex stuff. Speed training is complex, um, but it's really simple at the same time. You need to sprint to get faster. Um, but then whenever it comes to analyzing, well, how do we move? How do we fit? sprint training into the program that's obviously whenever the questions start being a little bit harder to answer before you try and dig into that what are the key issues or common issues you see footballers make when trying to develop their speed yes yeah, so like just a lack of speed work first of all you know and you know just not sprinting thinking that training does the job um you know their actual sport training when it doesn't really there is no time to focus on skill when you're in a game or when you're in a training game. Um, Over-reliance on their aerobic capabilities. Again, we've, we've sort of spoken about this and like there's this glorification of the lactic zone with coaches across all field sports and football's included. And like, it's, if it feels hard, I'm working. If it feels hard, this is, this is, this is like, this is what I should be doing. The lactic, contribution will make anything feel hard but ironically that's the zone almost that we want to stay away from we want to really focus on improving the other two each side the alactic and the aerobic we want to stay out of that like medium zone because it's it's like enough of a stimulus that we can't recover from it quickly but it's not enough stimulus on its own to give us any worthwhile adaptation from it so yet, how do we stay out of that medium zone? Is there any kind of key things we need to be aware of? So like this is this is like your lactic zone is your incomplete rest periods. You're running till you're sick. 
your repeat sprints up a hill with like 10 seconds rest. Lactic, lactic, lactic. Uh, you know, you're not producing high speeds anymore. You probably can't even fucking think because you're that tired. And it feels hard. But again, we're not, our outputs aren't high enough to get a transfer to speed. And it's not low enough to be aerobic. So all we're getting is this medium zone that feels really fucking hard. And we won't recover from it within 24 hours. So we'll struggle to train the next day. But we're not getting much from it. And this is where the problem lies with conditioning in, you know, field sport in general, but definitely in, in football, is a lot of managers, a lot of coaches, you know, they, they, it's almost like an ego trip. It's like, these guys need to feel this. You need to feel what it's like to hurt. You don't. It doesn't need to hurt that much. Training shouldn't hurt that much. Like 95% of the time, it should not hurt. There's that like 5% whenever we go into it and, you know, maybe when we're really up there. But like 95% of the time, this should not be hard. It should be structured to the point where it's not hard because if we're training speed, we're looking for complete recoveries unless we're, we're training speed endurance, which is like the icing on the cake of what is already a fast athlete. Or we're training aerobic, which we don't want to push that hard because then we're just creeping into the lactic zone. We're not even training aerobic anymore. We're just making it hard for... For what? And this is, I suppose, the problem where athletes do huge volumes of training and they're fucked after their, after their work, but they don't get that much from it because it's hard work, but it's not smart work. And we're, and we're not getting the adaptation from it that we think we are, you know? So it comes down to that quality over quantity. You don't have to like fucking kill yourself every single session. And so from like a um, sort of a KPI for speed, then how do you know, it's kind of a, probably a really dumb question, but how do you know you're getting faster? Any kind of key KPIs you look at other than I'm running faster? Yeah, so like, it's really interesting because sometimes watching people, like a lot of people, sprinting is like one of these funny things where the harder you try to run, fast the slower you're probably going so if you were to speak to the top level sprinters there it's 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 all about relaxation it's all about awareness it's control right so a lot of the time and again it's another mistake of well try and run as fast as you can that doesn't work you have to be you have to be patient you have to be in control you have to be at peace and relaxed and that's where longer runs longer sprint runs can sometimes help like 200 300 meters you know you can have time to think about your position so like for me whenever i first start working with somebody obviously we can use obviously the gold standard is you know your timing systems that's 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 the best way to know so you time your sprints hand timing is a little bit iffy because we're 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 creeping into human error there and it can be you know you can maybe stop the clock half a second earlier because you want somebody to get faster you know well we'll just count the seconds one (laughs) yeah yeah, exactly yeah um yeah there are probably coaches who do that to like justify why they're in their position um outside of like timing systems and like gps that obviously track you know your max speed um it's it's obviously hard to tell if you if you are getting faster. What I would look for personally is 
this is obviously subjective, but on the pitch, like, are you making it to the ball quicker? You'll know if you're struggling, no matter where you, no matter where you play, and you'll know once you start to get faster. You'll know. Um, you'll just feel it on, you know, you'll feel it on the pitch. You'll feel it in training. And I would also, from a coaching perspective, even if I'm not able to time people, I'll usually be able to tell by looking at the video and by looking at how they are moving, whether they're running faster or not. I can definitely tell if somebody could run faster, if there's if there's really glaring errors there in movement. Um, so that's that's sort of one thing that I would use if I'm not able to time them is like, well, how are they moving? Are there still massive flaws in their movement? And a large proportion of the time when you correct those, they will get faster and they will get better. I guess the main point you put there was having control in your running technique, because if you're yes running in a straight line that's great but then off so if you're running with a ball you need to be controlled because then it has its own skill elements yeah. so that being said do you do any sort of practice running at speed with a ball or do you just leave that to the sport specific training sessions it depends on like what time of the year that we're in so like if we're in off season and there isn't any training going on um then um we would potentially look to include the ball on you know when we have looked at speed and we've ran through that without the ball because obviously it's a skill in itself um so there there is there is the argument that well should we be getting the ball in play right from the start but you just can't there's far too much to think about and we need the mechanics first to sprint um in your ideal world, you're able to focus on, you know, you're able to speak to the coaches and you're able to almost like help to design training sessions where the drills that include the ball have that focus, you know, have that speed and alactic power focus, but you don't usually get that. You don't usually get that input. So in terms of the, the chance you have to actually practice speed with the ball, as a coach, you don't usually get it. Um, and you usually have to wait for the player to naturally transfer this improved level of speed to the ball control. And that's that's probably a whole different argument entirely, is that transfer. But in terms of my role, my role would very, very rarely even have the opportunity to think about performing a speed session with a ball. You know, it's mostly just right let's train the physical quality and then this transfer with a faster athlete will probably carry over to whenever they have the ball yeah absolutely no that's a very good point and uh, kind of a nice way to kind of end that section there um so kind of moving on in terms of standards like everybody loves a standard am i good enough to play at xyz level so do you, from a coaching perspective, a performance perspective, have different standards you like athletes to hit at, say, amateur, sub-elite, all the way into elite? Is there anything that they could just put a nice big tick next to, like, yes, I'm elite standard, I'm sub-elite, I'm moving, I'm regressing. Is there anything that you have in terms of your monitoring system? Yeah, it's probably, this, this is probably a really interesting question. I'm not even sure I'm going to give you the answer that you want here, but um, this, is, this, is, this, is, this is why we're having the discussion. So, like, listen, Let's stick with speed. You want to be a nine, 
meters per second guy over an eight meters per second guy. You want to be a 10 meters per second guy over a nine meters per second guy. Obviously, there are ceilings to capabilities, and we have the argument of what about slower guys who are at the top level? But from a physical point of view, um, you really do want to be looking to push yourself as far away from that 6.5 meters per second as you can. So if you're sitting at seven, seven and a half meters per second, that average speed over the course of a game, you're going to be fucked. That's, you know, you are, you are really close to your max velocity there. Now, if you can push yourself to nine, you're going to be much more comfortable in your recoverability between those sub max efforts. So if you can look at your max speed, I, I find that's one of my, that's one of my things that I'll look at is driving the max speed number up and away from where we're averaging in a game, which is six, six and a half meters per second. Um, strength standards is a really interesting one. And it's um, pretty hotly debated. And um, I would be one of those who would debate it in terms of like, we need to be able to squat like two times your body weight or one and a half times your body weight or stuff like that. And I don't know whether it comes from like the bias that I have as the type of player that I am and the type of guy I am in the gym. And, you know, I was never particularly strong, but was always um, very responsive to speed training. Um, and like, for me, I look at these strength standards and I'm like, do these properly represent all kinds of athletes that I work with? And the way I see it, and this is, this is very much based off the work of Joel Smith. He, he, he speaks a lot about like, there are muscular driven guys and there are elastic driven guys. So, and you'll know them because the muscular driven guys are what they are. They got the big squats. They got the big deadlifts. They fucking love lifting heavy, right? And they have loads of force production capabilities. Okay. So a strength standard for these guys is like money. Give me a strength standard. Get me like, I'll touch that weight and give me a three week program and I'll, I'll hit that. But then we have these elastic guys, longer limbs, number thinner, not very responsive to strength training, but yet great performers and fast. A lot of these guys are fast, but compared to the muscular driven guys, they're quite weak. Why is that? And in my opinion, it's like these guys are great angle finders in terms of how they move. They have great positional awareness. And they don't like weights. They don't like strength training. I don't want strength training. I don't want strength training. I don't care about your standard. Like I just beat him over 40 meters. So why, like he's squatting, what's he squatting? 60 kilo heavier than me. Why did I just beat him over? Because... Force production capabilities, how strong is strong enough to move fast? That depends on the athlete. If you have somebody who relies on their force production capabilities, then they need to be fucking strong. But if you have this guy who's really good at finding angles and leveraging positions, you could walk into the gym, they could be, you could go, this, they are, they are not even an athlete. This is going right, right the way to top level sprinters. They aren't an athlete. They, they go out and they'll go on. Why? So why do we have strength standards? Whenever there are weak guys, weak. 
weak guys out there because there's this transfer from like max strength to speed that we think we know, but we don't because when it comes to moving fast, a lot of people just go, well, we just need to get them stronger. That's, that doesn't work because timing is of the essence here, right? So starting strength and acceleration strength are on the clock. So you have to be able to produce that fast. Your max strength, that's not on the clock. How long does it take to perform a one rep max squat? As you see in Bolt got 70 meters ran by the time you've done that. Do you know what I mean? So this is like where whenever we speak about standards, I have speed standards. I want you faster. That's what I want you to focus on. I want you faster. Do I set strength standards? No, not anymore. And I never really, I never really did because I never seen the value in it because there were traditionally strong guys who couldn't fucking move. I'm like, well, why do I have a strength standard? That clearly the squat's not helping this, this person, this guy or girl, it's not helping. They can't move. They're not getting any, they're not getting any faster. Yes, okay, you might in increase your capability to produce force, which helps a lot with like change of direction and slowing down and decelerating because the ground contact times are longer. So there is there is a pretty good transfer from relative strength to those aspects. But again, if I have a good mover and someone who can leverage positions really well, do I need them? Do I need to set them a strength standard? Is that going to make them worse? You know, so in terms of standards, listen, we can look at like, we can look at, yes, whenever we compare elite to sub-elite, obviously the GPS data shows us that elite players will cover more distance per game. They'll complete more high-speed runs at higher velocities. And they're also stronger and more explosive on average than sub-elite. But does that mean that we need to have these standards for these guys to hit? I would have movement standards. But that's specific to the individual and specific to the issues that they may have where they're having these energy leaks or potential injury problems. They, I would have movement standards. So are we, are we hitting good angles? What's our positional awareness like? What's our... What's our running posture like whenever we get to max speed? Can we accelerate efficiently with good shapes? Those are what I'm looking for in terms of standards. But strength standards, no, because we have the muscle-driven guys, we have the elastic-driven guys and girls who some people respond really well to weight training, they respond really well to volume, high heavy lifts. That Some people, you give them one set of heavy squats that's them for the session like they're done they're done they don't want to do anything else i'm fucking white get me out of here i don't want to be here anymore you know amazing so um you kind of answered the question but <laughs> without answering it itself if that makes sense so um so main key points there is standards are specific to the individual and yeah. we look we really look at movement standards yeah. Um, there isn't like you need to be squatting 200, you need to be deadlifting this, you need to be bicep curling 12 and a half. You know? <laughs> <laughs> that helps. <laughs> no matter so, what anyone says. <laughs> no, so I think that's actually a perfect answer because it is very specific yeah. to the person and it comes into the IDP, so the individual development plan. You know, 
what is you are your best self where's the deficiencies and what we need to plug in to sure. accelerate yeah so it's cool so again it comes back to that perhaps don't compare yourself to others where are you now and then where do you need to go and what does that progression kind of roadmap look like exactly yeah for sure amazing so i want to talk about uh minimizing the risk of injury because it is clearly a huge thing doesn't matter whether you're in football any sport athletes hate being injured yeah and as they say and i've said it quite a lot of times on the podcast athletes greatest ability is their availability high amounts of training sessions and games they can complete their greatest success that they're going to have in the sport sure. so from a footballer's perspective is there kind of common injuries you see and then if so, how can we minimize the risk? Yeah, so like in football and in all fin sports, we are in like a non-contact injury epidemic right now. And I think anybody who's involved in um, the performance world will see that. Um, and this isn't just a recent thing. This is this is this has been happening. We are in we are in we are in just an epidemic of non-contact injuries. You know, when it comes to footballers. We look at hamstrings, groin, hips. Like there's a hip epidemic at the minute, labral tears and stuff like that. We've got ankles, quads, calves. Like we've got tears and we've got overuse. We've got chronic overuse injuries. So I think when it comes to like what is like that's the main question. Like if we have this non-contact epidemic, like what is going on? What is happening here that is causing this? And um, Dan Path, who is a world-class athletics coach um and he's sort of one of the guys who i have really sort of delved into in the last two years or so and really looked at his work and he's just he's he's just such an amazing coach and he would highlight that there are four main contributors to injury so we have programming we've got lifestyle we've got bad sports medicine and we've got you know movement We've got the biomechanics. So I'll talk about programming first. So like programming is one of the one of the main contributors. So like overtraining, but then we have the argument of is it overtraining or is it under recovering? I think it's it's the same thing no matter what way that you look at it. Overtraining, under recovering, same thing. Um, you know, we have this glorification of training, no days off, and whatever else we just there's only so much that we can take before we just break down. So this overtraining, under-recovering argument is the same thing. We're still doing too much and recovering too little. We have, still with programming, we have a lack of high-speed exposure. This is, like, it, it's common sense to me, but, like, it, we, we don't get, and I keep going back to sprint training. You can see my bias here, can't you? But we don't expose athletes to high-speed when do we tear hamstrings at high fucking speeds? So why do we not gain exposure? And like, we're talking exposure of like positional exposure. If you don't know where you're supposed to be in space, whenever you're at max velocity, when you get there and you overstride, your hamstring is going to go. That's, that's what's going to happen. If you're not exposed to high speed, and the muscles under a force that it is just not used to or speed or velocity, hamstring tear. Why? Oh, I was unlucky. No, you weren't. That's the first time that you've been at that speed in months. That's, that's, that's the problem. 
And then when it comes to strength training, again, sticking with programming, footballers hate strength training. They hate it. They really don't like it. They don't like gyms. Um, they're quite behind in that respect. Um, so we either have this real lack of strength training or again, on the flip side, the ones that do like the gym, they have too much reliance on it. So they think that they can just leave the field stuff to the game and just stay in the gym, lift their weights, and they'll be fine. You're just not exposed to the same forces. You're not exposed to the same velocities or the same movements and positions in the gym than you are in the field. So that's programming. So we have like just, we're doing too much or we're recovering too little lack of high speed exposure and just either a total lack of strength training or like too much reliance on it. Now, when we go in to biomechanics, this is my biggest argument when it comes to field-based training and why we need to get these athletes out of the gym and onto the field most of the time. Not all the time. The gym's, the gym's still important, but we need to get them onto the field, right? So, a 100-meter sprinter, I think they'll cover 100 meters in about 40 to 45 strides, right? So 100-meter sprinter, 40 to 45 ground contacts. Now, let's say a footballer covers 8 to 10K in a game. So now we're going thousands of ground contacts per match, per training session. Thousands of ground contacts. Now let's add this up over the course of a week or a month or a year. Add those ground contacts up and we get like galactic with the amount of times that our foot hits the ground, right? So I'll ask the question of what price does the athlete pay every time their foot hits the ground in an inefficient manner? Because we don't get taught how to run they're not being taught how to run. And there's thousands and thousands and hundreds and thousands of ground contacts over the course of a year. And we don't teach people how to run. How many injuries are the coaches causing? Avoidable. Because their players don't know how to fucking run. They don't know how to sprint. They don't know how to run. There are mechanical inefficiencies everywhere. If we look at an acute injury from an acute technical failure, again, as I spoke about, get your positioning wrong at high speed, hamstring tear. If you're chronically injured, have you got a chronic biomechanical issue with your sprinting or your running? If it's a chronic issue, every time your foot hits the ground, is there a chronic issue with how it does that? Is that what is causing it? Well, we don't know because we're not looking at how you run. It's unacceptable from a preparation standpoint. It is the thing that the players do the most. Foot hits the ground thousands of times in a match. And yet strength and conditioning coaches and players think that we can just take them into the gym, improve their squat, and they'll be injury free. It's crazy. It makes no sense to me. So we don't teach running. And then we can go into the landing mechanics. So we don't really look that much at that, you know, the top level guys might. So again, that's the biomechanical side of things. Then we go into lifestyle. This is like the straightforward one. So like 
Sleep. Are you sleeping four hours a night? Nutrition. You'll know all about this one. Is your nutrition shit? Because we know that that can increase your risk of injury. Hydration. Stress in general. So if we have a guy who is sleeping four hours a night and eating 1,400 calories a day and their only hydration is a cup of coffee in the morning and a glass of water after they finish the gym session and they're stressed as fuck. It doesn't matter how good their training program is. They're, they're a real risk of injury here. And then if we go to the fourth one, we go to sports medicine. Like there's bad sports medicine out there. People are being given poor advice. Like a lot of sports medicine, they don't understand hydraulics. Like if we look at engineering, right? Engineering looks at fluid and statics. And then we go to humans and we just look at static. We just look at the muscle. It has to be the muscle. But we've got the fascia and the fluid systems and the bursa and the fat pads. And it's like, are we looking at these with injuries? Or are we just looking at the muscle? We'll just get them stronger. That doesn't work. Can't work like that. Are we looking at these? When we send our athletes, our, our injured athletes or our athletes with chronic issues, are we sending them to people who are just looking at one of so many different components and telling them to go and strength train? Because a lot of the time, that's not the answer. So those are the four things for me that contribute the most. Now, we can't control the sports medicine side of things. Obviously, we can select our references well. But for, for the athlete, your lifestyle is obviously so controllable. Yeah, then we have our programming. So if you're working with a coach and the coach is watching this, are you the problem? Because a lot of the time they are. And then if we look at the biomechanics, again, every time your foot hits the ground, how's it hitting it? What position are you in? Are you in an injury risk position? Thousands and thousands and thousands of times a month and a year so that's injury for me a lot of these are preventable a lot one question on that because that was very that was very thorough and comprehensive um from a screening perspective is there any kind of go-to screening protocols or practices that you do so say for example i'm a footballer listening to this now i'm like oh shit am i at a heightened risk of injury what can i do is there any kind of assessments tools that i can use to almost like uh, categorize where I am. iPhone. iPhone and a tripod and video yourself and how and how you move. So look at your positions and you're not going to be able to analyze this. If you are somebody watching and listening, you need to have somebody who understands this. So you video and you need somebody who understands this to look at, right? How are you actually, how are you moving? If you have chronic issues, is the chronic issue within how you actually move? So video for me is one of, is probably my, my main tool that I use when it comes to analyzing movement and, in, you know, identifying potential risk factors when it comes to, 
movement mechanics. So record from the side, the front, the back, up above, acceleration, start, max velocity, change of direction, and analyze how they move because you'll learn a lot. You'll learn a lot from how some from, from how somebody moves. Um, so that for me is my main screening process. And then obviously I'm gonna look through, well, how are you how are you living? You know, how do you live? And I'm sure that you'll understand this. You need to you need to know what you need to assess, right? What am I actually like here? Because the lifestyle is the really controllable bit for somebody listening. What am I like here? Am I handling everything that I possibly can from you know from a lifestyle perspective to make sure that I'm not just asking for an injury, short term, long term, whatever. But for me as a coach, my main screening tool, I'm not a massive fan of like FMS or anything like that. Again, that could be controversial. I don't care. But I'm not a fan of just watching somebody move through specific tasks and go, oh, well, I understand how you move. They could be moving completely different tomorrow. Why is that? What's happened? They haven't changed. Same person. Why are they moving differently? What's going on? You know, and that doesn't, you know, it doesn't tell you everything and it's not performed at a high speed. So for me, for anybody that plays a sport, it's irrelevant. Perfect. Now, again, very comprehensive. That was a nice little tool. Everyone has a phone. Don't yeah. have to have an iPhone. Other brands are available. Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah. yeah. That's cool. We're not cool. getting it out there. Like, I'm not sponsored by Apple. <laughs> Sorry, I bounced it. I'm on Android, so we're good. We're, we're, we're fine. We're fine. <laughs> cool. So sweet. Um, so when we look at, say, uh, the yearly kind of periodization of everything, so yeah. we're clearly going to have off-season, pre-season, in-season. So how, just kind of briefly, would you approach this from players' athletic development? Is it times where you push more progressively with certain elements of the development, times where you pull back, sometimes where you maintain? What is your general approach to this? Yeah, well, from a, from a real-world perspective, again, away from the textbooks and away from everything else, in the, in the real world, I see that there are times to push the ceiling, which is where we are aggressive and we're like searching for adaptation. And then there are times to pull the floor, which is where we're just slow-cooking the process, letting things happen. We're doing the right things, but we're not chasing adaptation aggressively. Now, for me, off-season is usually push the ceiling time. And for me, that's the time to prioritize, to get fast. So use the time that you have away from training to prioritize speed work. It also could be the time to focus on, you know, potentially improving strength if that's an issue. So we can prioritize strength training. Um, but again, my main thing in off season is let's, let's get fast. Let's, let's, let's work on sprints. Let's work on speed. Um, let's look to increase our chronic workload so that we're less susceptible to spikes. That would be that would be sort of one of the things for me that that I would that I would want to see is getting this higher chronic workload over time so that we're less susceptible to spikes whenever we go back to our clubs. Now, preseason for me and in season, I like to make them as close as possible because again, as I spoke about earlier. You want how you practice to be how you play. So for me, preseason starts the pull the floor aspect of what I control because clubs will usually look to push the ceiling in preseason. So I can't be pushing the ceiling 
and the club is pushing the ceiling at the same time because they were going to blow up, right? So I love this quote from Charlie Francis's, if you enter the season fit, then the game will take care of the rest. So for me, if you're going into preseason in a good place, then we leave conditioning at the door. So what do we focus on pre and in season? We focus on A, where we have to be adaptable as fuck because we don't know what's going to happen. We're going to have competition changes. We're going to have potential injuries, niggles. So we need to be really on the ball in terms of, right, what if something changes. I'm going to prioritize getting some form of max velocity speed work included in their week. So we get some exposure. That'll usually be a flying sprint. So rather than a static start, we're going to go fly-ins um, just to reduce that sort of overall load on, on the actual system. So, and that could be something like after the warm up on training day, we do a couple of max velocity sprints, but we need to be really careful with volume there. So there's a big difference for me from off season, how, how I would train people and then in season, in season and pre-season are very much the same thing for me. And we transition away from conditioning because the game will take care of that. And we go into, right, let's slow cook strength. Let's slow cook power. Let's slow cook um, the, the entire process. Let's focus on feeling good when we leave the gym. Let's focus on a positive experience in the gym. There's no grueling workouts. Let's focus on hitting max velocity in the week when we can, but we need to be careful. All season is definitely a push the ceiling time where we really try to dial down on, you know, to dial in on speed. We really try to prioritize that. And if there's any sort of, you know, of gaping holes in how we move um, or structural, then off season would be the time to look to dial that in. In season, pre-season, definitely not the time. I really like the um, sort of thought process behind there. Like you just got to acknowledge what the actual sort of um, football coaching staff are going to do as well in terms of their progression. Like, right, got the boys back. Uh, we're just going to actually hammer them. And you just got to acknowledge that. So you have to pull back and it makes complete sense and a really good like awareness there for sure. 100%. So kind of going into uh, the final question of today. Um, so, as we kind of know from like this average to elite kind of journey going from say amateur to sub elite or up to elite, uh, what kind of, I guess, what kind of sort of three key things can you suggest for them uh, to be doing on a daily, yearly, monthly and yearly basis to accelerate this progression? Is it a top three, a top five or just one thing? Yeah, so I can, I'd say I probably can have two or three in terms of like, the physical, in terms of training, something that you can actually get involved in. I'm sure everybody can probably guess what I'm going to say. <laughs> Speed training, like prioritize it. Get faster, both linear and multi-directional. Get yourself some speed training. Get yourself moving faster. That is, that is the number one prioritization. Hopefully at the end of this, everyone can understand why in terms of how that will affect not only your ability to move faster, but also your ability to do it more often and to get through the games in a more comfortable manner um, with a lot more energy left over um, while you're in game. Um, so speed training. The, the second thing that I would be 
that I would ask people to focus on would be the prioritization of training components and make sure you prioritize recovery. You can only take so much before you'll break. So it can be very, very hard sometimes to try to factor in all these different training components. And we can be really tempted to like train nearly every day or train six days a week and try and do like a double session on training days and try to do this, try to do that. Sometimes that's going to make things worse. So the prioritization of what's really, really important. What is the limiting factor for you? Most of the time it's, well, I don't do any speed training. So that's usually the way to just incorporate that in and prioritize it. Don't try to do too many hard workouts in, you know, in a row. Because again, after that first one, you need the recovery period of 48 hours before you can go hard again. So you need to be able to prioritize training days into, well, what are my high sessions and what are my lower sessions? You can still train on the low days, but you've got to train smart. You can't train hard that day. You've got to be able to dial it down. And then probably the third thing that I, that I would say to focus on is understand that a lot of the time it's the program and the, that's the problem. It's not that you need to add anything in. Maybe that you need to subtract a lot of shit out because as I said, programming a lot of the time is the issue. You're doing too much. You're not allowing enough time for recovery. You're crossing recovery paths over. You're inhibiting your ability to adapt to these high stimulus with more high stimulus before the adaptation process has had a chance. So a lot of the time it's right. Let's, let's subtract a lot of stuff that I know, like, you know, I'm squatting twice a week. And I'm going to try to add my speed session. Oh, but I can't add that on top of it. So, Take one squat session out. Rather than trying to add lots of stuff in, that's that's a really simple example, but rather than trying to add everything in, what can you take away? Can you simplify things and just get the quality stuff done with the most amount of time left over for recovery and adaptation? Those would be three things that, that I would say to focus on in your own training if you wanted to make that step. Um, up in levels whether that be from amateur to like semi-pro or like semi-pro pro whatever it is working towards being that elite level is those would be the three things that i would recommend that you really focus on when it comes to your training amazing jack that was absolutely incredible episode thank you very much for sharing your insights and knowledge there um huge takeaways i certainly learned a lot today uh without a doubt so for everyone listening and tuning into today's pod how can people find out more about you your services and um how they how can they get in touch yeah so um listen first of all it was an absolute pleasure um as i said i i have been hoping that we would get a chance to chat and like share some stuff so it's been absolutely awesome to be on um and i, I am genuinely a huge fan of the podcast so it's it's been an absolute privilege to be on um in terms of finding me um i am on instagram coach under slash jay clark um all of my sort of links and all all my videos and posts and everything are linked to that instagram page so that's the best way to find me super very very cool uh once again jack absolute pleasure to have you on um and again i hope everyone listening took a huge amount of uh, knowledge and value away from that because again 
I certainly did. And uh, I feel like I need to go and do some speed work now for some <laughs> form of reason to pedal my bike faster or something. I don't know. <laughs> but no, dude, uh, absolutely incredible. Thank you very much. And uh, once again, thank you. Awesome, man. Thank you.